0: This is our first moment talking, our first conversation. Quinn Nelson, Snazzy Labs. Hello.
1: Howdy, how are you? Hopefully not the last time talking.
0: No, but I mean, we interact on Twitter and it's funny. I think people that watch YouTube assume all YouTubers are in a little club and we like meet up on weekends, (laughs) but it's not totally like that. But that's what I kind of want the show to be. I mean, I think it'd be nice to hang out.
1: Let's do it. Absolutely.
0: Well, so my first question is, do you listen to podcasts at all
1: i do i listen to a lot
0: oh great and
1: i always i always have
0: because yeah so many people that have come on like youtubers have been telling me they don't at all marquez and jonathan both were like no just just no interest in like what's what's wrong with you how can you be into tech and not listen to podcasts
1: yeah that's wild man i've listened to them for years even back into the days when i had to sync the podcasts through itunes oh, to yeah. my ipod oh, for sure <laughs> yeah totally <man>. yeah <laughs> oh gee <laughs> Yeah, had to be a real podcast fan to get into to get into that.
0: You sent me a little list of like we were like, what should we talk about? You sent me a little list, and one of the things on here was ten years on YouTube, and I think that'd be an interesting thing to start out. You have been on YouTube for ten years now. Twenty eighteen is your forever ten year anniversary, which is pretty wild because you're not you're not an old man. No, I'm twenty five, so I started when I was a teenager. Yeah, that's crazy to me.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was. Pr- Pretty crazy how things have changed since then, too.
0: Totally. So i I signed up in I signed up in two thousand six, and I have a video that is private and no one will ever see. Uploaded in two thousand seven, <laughs> but it wasn't like release the video. <laughs> this is the thing: is like YouTube wasn't. There was no clarity about what is this. There wasn't no. a YouTuber. Right, we're all just like doing things. No, it was a completely new platform. Yeah. Right, and a lot of my framework for it at the time. I think was coming from This Week in Tech, from what like Leo Laporte was doing. That was some of my first exposure of like, what can online video mean? Mine as well. It was also video podcasts were deeply tied into it, right? Like it wasn't just YouTube. If you did stuff on YouTube, it was smart to also upload them as a video podcast because a lot of people had consumed them that way.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild how the format has changed. I mean, just as a perception, when I started making YouTube videos, I didn't even know that you could earn money doing it. So that's how <laughs> yeah. how woefully inept I was yeah. when I began, but also how just the market was completely different. I mean, I think Fred was one of the largest YouTubers.
0: Do you remember that guy? No, I don't. I wasn't like into the YouTube community until pretty late.
1: Yeah, I, I probably wasn't either. He was the first YouTuber that I remember being a big deal. He had this shrill voice. It was terrible. And the, you go back and watch the videos and you're like, wow, this is truly... The YouTube (laughs) renaissance, like how did this ever, (laughs) how was this ever popular? We've come a long way, baby. Yeah. But I think I had started making videos by the time he hit 1 million subscribers and he was the biggest YouTuber, which is, you know, looking at that now that looks, uh, the million subscribers is trivial almost, but it's pretty wild.
0: There was just this feeling of, I don't know. I mean, I knew based on seeing what other people are doing, I'm like, this is going to be something someday, but I don't know what it is. And I personally, I got distracted. I just like kind of didn't do it. And so, I mean, the amazing thing with you is that you've gone this whole time. I mean, you've got almost a thousand videos. Is that, did I remember yeah. that right? That's
1: crazy. Yeah, About 1,200, about a 1, thousand that are public. <laughs> There's a few that I've hid behind the walls oh, for the okay. better good. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I don't blame you. Yeah, it's, it's for everyone's yeah. good. But I, I did go back and dig through archives. And so hopefully everybody else does that in this time, because this is, this is the time <laughs> to remember on your on your anniversary, oh, no kidding, yeah, it's a uh, that's pretty wild. What do you see as like the next arc for YouTube? Like, where are things about to go?
1: It's a great question. You know, I think a lot of people, especially with kind of the recent YouTube drama, I feel like the community is is worried about the platform or thinks that YouTube's going in the wrong direction or that opportunity isn't really there anymore. And I don't think that's a very accurate representation of how YouTube is. That's not to say that the platform is perfect. That's not to say that YouTube does everything right, because there are things that I wish they would do differently. But on the whole, I mean, the fact that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people... That have a livelihood publishing content through YouTube is is insane. I mm-hmm. mean, when I when I started in this in the old days of YouTube, that everyone talks about how wonderful they you know it was. No one did that. There were maybe fifteen to twenty people that were able to do something full time. Let alone have a staff of a lot of people. And I mean, you're a, in the grand scheme of things a relatively new creator, mm-hmm. at least on the YouTube side. And and in the last couple of years, your last year really. Now, the first video I saw of yours was the uh, iPhone 10 review. You know, there's kind of this this boom that happened.
0: All my growth was the last year, yeah.
1: Right. And so I think this implication that, oh, you know, it's impossible to get popular on YouTube if you're not already is is just wrong. And I think there's more opportunity now than perhaps ever because of the, the reality that YouTube is a platform that you can do things on. And 10 years ago, it was just this thing that no one really knew
0: what it was going to be yet. I think still a really common confusion – from people excited about the prospect of being a YouTuber is that you're going to get rich on the ads that run in front of your video and YouTube is going to cut you a big check and that's how you're going to be a star and you're going to, you know, what, but like that is not yeah. the best way to look at YouTube. I think is that they're offering some, w- what should be very costly technical services of hosting and a super powerful search engine and, you know, hosting video and streaming video that—it's oh, very expensive and technically challenging to do it well. So you're getting the best in the world services in, in every way, hosting and, and streaming and all this stuff. And if you can't find ways to build a business off that, it's kind of on you in a way. Like the challenges of many freelance things, like if you develop a bunch of skills, like you have a good camera and you have learned to take photos. Now it's up to you to turn that into a business. You don't just become a photographer because you have this stuff.
1: Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people kind of complain about, oh, well, you have to play YouTube's game. You have to kind of fit into what their algorithm is looking for. And there's certain truths to that, but if you, you know, did your own thing on your own site, there would be SEO and you would have to play to search trends. And so I don't think it's any different than self-hosted video. Obviously the infrastructure and the cost is, is insanely different. And I think you do have less control on YouTube, but there's also more opportunity provided to you by YouTube because YouTube wants as many people as possible to be making money on their site
0: because yeah, it means
1: true. they make more money. So the
0: yeah. worst example lately are people like uh, do you know Max Yuryev that does his do. Apple stuff yeah. and yeah and he's a really nice guy great guy right. and his channel got I, we kind of still don't know what happened but basically it got reported for some kind of inappropriate behavior and he had all of his AdSense removed. And he had just gone to doing this full time, and he spoke to YouTube support a whole bunch, and they're like, "There's nothing we can do." They basically were totally unhelpful, and he just had to abandon his channel with over a hundred thousand subs and and start from scratch. So I also should say, everybody go follow him because he's a great guy and and does good <laughs> work. So uh, his yeah. new thing's called Max Tech, but yeah, now he's you know he's got to start, he's at 11k right now because of technical challenges with YouTube. So that's that is the risk, you know, like, you can kind of get hit by unknown variables in the behind the scenes
1: you work on their platform you play their game
0: yeah all the more reason to diversify so that's why i have a podcast i mean so one thing i like about podcasts (laughs) is like it's still the era of blogging still yeah, you know it's still fully in your control it's an open technology it's um apple is the biggest source for it if you go to itunes but it's still it's still wide open technically right it's like you just provide your rss feed and i really i really like that about that about it and so it's it's part of the reason that i want to keep something outside of the youtube world
1: and i appreciate the format i know they're not for everyone but i like longer format content especially because that's not really a place where that kind of content would thrive on youtube but i think it mm. should exist i mean hour long stuff is not popular <laughs> on youtube for (laughs) retention issues and all this other stuff and publishing that content doesn't do you much good but i think podcasts are an excellent way to be able to talk about stuff more in depth and that's honestly why i prefer them beyond even though i make tech videos i don't watch many tech videos but i listen to many tech podcasts just because of the the depth that they go into that you can't get on a video
0: no man i'm in the same boat uh recommend some podcasts what do you what do you love oh boy I love
1: all the Relay FM stuff.
0: Hey, so, Relay. Yeah, me too. Yeah,
1: they're great guys. Uh, Connected is a, is a podcast that I listen to every week. Uh, I listen to Accidental Tech Podcasts as well with John Siracusa and Marco Arment and Casey List. They do good job over there.
0: Fantastic show. Yeah,
1: I'm trying to think. There's many. I listen to too many podcasts.
0: Did you happen to listen to the last Connected where they talked about my photo? I didn't, I, that's, that's in my docket, but I haven't oh, heard that one. I wish yet. you heard it before so we could, because I have so much to say about what they said. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It, they had this really interesting interpretation of a photo I posted on Twitter. I won't bother go. people would have to go listen to other episodes for it to make sense. so I won't talk about it here, but hopefully I can pick up that conversation with those guys oh, later. Man, I wish I had done but that. I, listen to it. I think it's episode 222. Oh, that's a tough memory. Anyway, we're not just here to talk about this show and other shows. (laughs) I think the the best topic that we have in common is to talk about the video that we both appeared in, the MKBHD camera test. What was the name of the video? Actually, I I don't remember. The the link will be in the Mm -hmm. show notes. But it's where he compared basically every modern smartphone camera and uh, the blind smartphone camera test 2018. There you go. And it's one of those ideas. Marquez has this horrible habit of coming up with ideas that once it's there, you're like, why wasn't I doing this? Why didn't everybody think of this first? (laughs) This is so obvious. Mm -hmm. This is a great Mm -hmm. idea. And uh, I'm really glad he did this. We both had our reactions shared on it and you totally called it, which is pretty wild. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as much as I would like
1: to take all the credit, that was my second guess. I did guess the iPhone XS first, but... Uh, I guess the Mate 20 Pro second, so.
0: So, okay, actually, there there will be a little homework for this conversation. You you should probably watch at least part of Marcus's video, um, but we will explain what went down and why it's interesting and I think what there is to take away from it. I think, first of all, I've got to say, I feel like my resp- the things I said in the video were not useful because part of when he presented the data to us, I don't know if you received it in the same way, he sent me the chart of... Here's the winners, right? Here's how the tournament went down, but it wasn't connected to any of the photos. Nope, so same. once he showed it to me, all I could think of is like, I don't remember what I voted for. I don't remember what these looked like. And so I really wish I had those references in front of me right away because I know I would have had more to respond to it. But instead, I was just trying to process how the hell uh, Phone ended up near <laughs> the end. Right. But it was very interesting. And I think my biggest takeaway from it, we'll go into more detail, but the biggest thing to me is this says so much more about what people see in photos than about any of these cameras. Agreed. And uh, this is part of what Marquez said in his video too. But uh, do you remember what you voted for? Um, yeah. I'm Roughly, I mean,
1: I I also voted for the BlackBerry in the first round. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't vote for the iPhone. I did, however, and I am proud of myself for this, I did vote for the Pixel 3 uh, in the first <laughs> round, and it did lose. But I was I was actually relatively pleased with my own choices because I did better than I feel like, well, I shouldn't say better. Uh, yeah, we like su- get points not, if you... Uh...
0: Is,
1: yeah, this is subjective. But I uh, chose the higher end smartphones on average more than I think some of the other YouTubers. And so my reaction was a little less kind of surprised, but in the same breath, I was also very surprised by what everyone else seemed to push
0: to the end of the race. So, well, and for me, the biggest going back, yeah, there was a few where I was surprised that I didn't choose the ones that I liked, but, but I wasn't that surprised because in those specific comparisons, it wasn't really demonstrating the strengths of the phones that I do like. No. So, so again, looking at the photos for a second time, uh, you know, the BlackBerry next to the iPhone, they both had pretty similar profiles. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a home run for the BlackBerry. Yeah. They just like, they felt kind of similar. It was like, okay, I guess this one, it's not, it's not a huge difference. And that's something I try to include at the end of all my camera phone reviews is choose based on the phone and on the operating system, because most of them has have awesome cameras right now. Like you're going to get a good camera. You you don't yeah. really need to worry about that too much. And people that have this like that are duking it out over the Google or over the Pixel Three versus the iPhone XS. That is it's just so not an interesting competition to me. They have sure. they have slightly different profiles. The Pixel is a little more contrasty. They both have tons of dynamic range. They both work great. I mean, take the one you like. But they're all getting pretty close more or less and we really right. saw it in this test
1: well and the irony is that they're almost all using identical they're all the sensors are nearly the same mm-hmm. you know there's kind of there's not that many options when it comes to high-end smartphone sensors i mean yeah. sony's got a, a couple of choices and you kind of go with one of those and so really it comes down to the color science and image processing that the oems put into their cameras and Clearly, <laughs> to me, mm-hmm. uh, Google and Apple and and Samsung and companies with more resources spend more time and effort and energy on that than less expensive kind of budget tier phones. Even though many of them, Poco phone is a great example, has the same sensor as the Google Pixel three, which is a phone that is nearly three times the cost. The, the photos look very different mm-hmm. um, just because of the way that the the image is processed. But it is interesting, and I think Marquez brought up a good point in that. The mediums in which he posted them aren't a very good representation due to compression. So he says, you know, I posted these on Twitter and I posted these on Instagram, Instagram stories nonetheless. <laughs> and so he said, you know, we're taking comparisons of these photos, but it's it's kind of hard to show. And he actually brought it up on video when you compare the BlackBerry to, to the iPhone when he showed it in his 4K video it was very clear to me, at least that the iPhone had won out because there was far more detail in a shirt that the blackberry just all smoothed together. I mean, when you had the full resolution images side by side, it was obvious that the Mm -hmm. iPhone's photo looked better, but his point was, and I think he, he made a great point on the platforms to which we publish these photos, namely Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, the end result changes slightly. And the photographer in me says, well, I still want the better camera (laughs) because I want to be able to, you know, blow these up and stuff like that. But then someone made a good point and said, when was the last time you sent a photo you took on your iPhone to get printed? (laughs) For sure. It's like, well, you know, that's a pretty good point. And I am publishing, you know, I consume and I publish all of the photos that I take on my phone on social media. And so by extension, I should probably utilize the tools that the large majority of, of the public prefers, which is kind of weird to think about.
0: Well, and going even slightly further in uh, why the quality was lost, I'm, I'm looking at them again. They're still in his Instagram stories. They're also half size. Right. So so they're in stories, but then they're also shrunk to 50%, shrunk, sorry. So that that's even further removing the, the quality here. One thing that's really striking to me and, and kind of shows that I think the way this went down was more of an artifact of the structure of how the the test was built, and not as like none of this is a knock on on how Mark has done did it. I would have done the same thing. I mean, it, it was very well designed and thoughtfully done. But looking at the the final shootout between uh, B and P, is what they're labeled. We don't know what they are at this point, P, which turned out to be Pocophone, right? It was it's terrible. Like it, it <laughs> should not be in the final round. Um, There's, you know, nobody looking at that photo would think that it's better than so many other images that were beat out earlier. And it's just the structure of the tournament. And I'm not a sports guy, so I can't actually suggest a better (laughs) tournament structure. I mean, I think it's that like, losers and winners would be re compete would be competing again, again, against others that they had, uh, you know, how do they do this? How do they do this in sports? This is a solved problem, right?
1: You know, once you're out you're out kind of and so you have to perform adequately throughout the whole way but well, it but is more true like in another you'll set have of kind rounds. of an upset win mm-hmm. and then in subsequent rounds you're like these guys should not be playing <laughs> <laughs> they,
0: <laughs> yeah
1: they suck they just they lucked out the first round but you know that's the reality so yeah.
0: and that also you you could design these images in a way that would play more to the strengths of the better phones you could. So, you know, a and lot of these had pretty f- flat lighting. Uh, it wasn't right. pushing dynamic range all that hard. So to to really do something that had extremely meaningful results would require so many more rounds of testing, I think, you know, so that I agree. as things lost against each other, you would rematch them. So there would be like several, several versions of the first round almost um, and using a few different lighting scenarios. Because the thing is, like, looking at the dynamic range of the more expensive phones that have you know the really high quality HDR and computational photography going on, it looks so much better. It's it's much yeah. much better. It's I, I definitely right. don't take that back. One
1: thing that that's interesting too is, I mean, probably you even more so than I, because I don't I don't really consider myself. I mean, I reckon that I'm a content creator and I do video and I'm probably more sophisticated than most people when it comes to to photography and video. But I don't consider myself, you know, an advanced photographer or a colorist or or anything. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting for me is I am kind of in with a foot in both camps. And so. My perception of of the general public, I mean, if you go back and you look at Instagram photos from five years ago, they all have these horrible filters on them, (laughs) like like X-Pro2, and that was the trend. That was what was cool. And then as time went on and as smartphone cameras got better and, and people, and I believe this to be true, I think people take more photos now, the general public, than they ever have before. Because people didn't, I mean, they'd have their digital cameras and whatever, but they'd bring them to specific events. And now they have a camera on them all the time. And they're taking photos. All the time, and so I think even though these people may not be trained or sophisticated in in photography, their know how, I suppose, kind of has improved over the last several years. Mm-hmm. And um, but in the same breath, I think there's still a bias towards super saturated images and stuff with a lot of detail, even though you know, m- m- kind of more contrast and. It's interesting because I have a friend, she, I graduated with her in high school and she's been a longtime friend and she kind of got into, (laughs) I don't want to stereotype, but as, as many uh, kind of young kids now into photography and she bought a DSLR and went on a big trip to Europe and took all these photos and came back and was like, I think all of these photos suck and they're worse than what I could have taken on my phone. Mm. And I, I think it's kind of telling because the computational photography has improved so much to the point where you can take a bad photo on a phone, but it's it's pretty difficult to do. And on DSLRs, simply because there's the expectation that you you know how to use the camera, or you're not going to leave it in in auto mode all the time, and just because of the the, the natural color profile that the that the camera OEMs choose. I mean. You're not going to have super exaggerated photos. They're relatively flat and especially if you're shooting in raw. And so it's just interesting in that people who, who don't seem sophisticated or even disillusioned to buying a DSLR because they think their phones can do better and so i wonder how that will influence the kind of world of non professional photography as, as time goes on even more than it already has
0: something yeah something you said there makes me i, I have to bring up the connected conversation and uh, it's that federico vittici was saying exactly that that he he really preferred the much more contrasty and saturated iphone 7 photo in the example which to me i had posted it as an example of Here's how great the iPhone XS is. Here's how much better it is than the older iPhones. <laughs> and his response was, "I like the old yes, one better." I like the old one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh. so it's it's so interesting to me that the hard won battles of dynamic range and not losing highlights and and all that stuff kind of goes out the window compared to contrast and exposure. And so you know, another challenge of Marquez's test is is that. You can always, if you take that photo three or four times, like point the camera at the subject, take the photo, point it away, and then point it back, it'll read a slightly different exposure each time. So even without manually interfering or touching the subject or anything, you could end up with the brighter photo on any of the cameras. So how do you actually really test these? So the way you do it in traditional cameras and mirrorless or SLRs is you would set them to the exact same settings, right? Like get all of the variables neutral and then you know that you're comparing apples to apples. But in the case of the smartphones, there's so much computation going on afterwards, you don't ever really know what the photo is that you took. Uh, it was really interesting talking to uh, Sebastian DeWitt on a previous episode who develops the app Halide. Halide, right. And it uh, – he was saying they have this issue. They they're writing the app that takes the photo. And I was like, okay, so when you read the shutter speed of a photo and it was actually taken from a combination of a dozen, (laughs) I don't know how many, but like, you know, combining many different exposures, what was the true shutter speed? Like, how do you, how do you even interpret the shutter speed? How is it a meaningful statement when it's using several different shutter speeds? And he, you know his response was like, "I'm, I'm not totally sure how that works." <laughs> so that's the that's a, the problem with these tests. Is there's a lot of secret sauce going on in the background. Yeah, there is. So you know, so and it, I think increasing you know, as time goes on too. Mm, oh yeah, de- yeah, definitely. The new the new iPhones are much harder to predict. Yep. I, I found the previous like iPhone X and stuff was a lot more. I was going to say reliable, but predictable is, is what I mean. So you knew what it was going to do each time. Did you, yeah. did you end up getting the XS or XR? I, I saw your video saying I you weren't going to,
1: but I am still on an iPhone 10. Oh, okay. And I would be tempted to upgrade if only for the camera, because that's, that's really the only area that I kind of know a significant difference and the, and the difference is significant. It is. Um, yeah. And I mean, I even, I was on the Google pixel three, for the last month and just switched back a couple days ago and I miss that camera <laughs> it's like yeah. I've, I'm gonna sound like an iOS fanboy but it's one of the only things I miss but I miss that camera a lot and I'm sure if I had the iPhone XS I would, I would feel the same um, but in the same breath and I think uh, if I had and this is something that I feel a, a lot of people feel too if I had young kids or i was taking a lot of photos i would absolutely upgrade Mm -hmm. and i think people who are doing that who used to buy um, and it's still something that i i mean the atp guys accidental tech podcast guys talk about it all the time and i'm I'm glad they do because i think it's important wherein you know they say you know if you have young kids and if they're still around you need to buy buy a real camera yeah Um, because the results are just so much better i mean i There's no better example than when I went to China for the first time when I was, I was, I was a kid, I was 12 years old. And I took this horrible uh, point and shoot camera with digital only zoom. And it was one of those first like really tiny cameras. Um, (laughs) So it was like a travel camera. I think it was a Kodak and it was a miserable camera. And, you know, I look back at that trip and I'm like, holy smokes, all of these photos are so bad that they're they're almost not worth having even taken. Yeah. And so I'm like I wish I would have brought a better camera just so I could kind of reminisce and remember that vacation. So I think in instances where you need good photos, you still need a, a real camera. But in the same breath, you know, and and I remember a tweet that you you tweeted was the best camera you always have, or the best camera you have is the one you have with you. The, the best camera is the one you have with you. And you just said, we'll just bring a better camera. Yep. Um, <laughs> Stand by that. <laughs> and there's truth to that. But in the same breath, people are taking so many photos now, which is good. I think that you really ought to have the best camera you can at all times. And I think that's that's one of the best arguments for upgrading phones nowadays is because it's the cameras are truly the only components left that I think year over year are getting significantly better and and different.
0: Well, I was lucky enough to be uh, en- enough older than you that at that time, when I brought a crappy camera with me, so in high school I went to Europe and I brought crappy cheap little camera, but it was film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that's lucky. <laughs> you know, the film – the the look of like you put the same film, roughly, in a expensive camera and a cheap one. You know, it looks about as good. And sometimes yeah. the cheap ones look better. Like there's a really nice look yeah. to cheap uh, film cameras. And I look back on those photos and the only problem is that I was taking bad photos, but the look of them, the technical aspects of it, the color, is all really nice. Like it feels it feels vintage in a cool way, and there's a lot of dynamic range and it was a much better time to have a cheap camera when, when you 're shooting film, so you know it, which is an interesting thing about the way things are now, like when we moved away from film into digital, we gave up a lot of a lot of hard won color science absolutely. What Kodak and Fuji had done over a hundred years is build up this really beautiful profile that made skies and skin and plants look incredibly beautiful. And it was by moving colors in slightly less accurate directions. So if you look at film filters, you know, like presets, the the main things they're always going to do, for example, is a a few things. They're going to take blues and make them a little bit less purple and a little more cyan, like a little more green. Hmm. And they're going to take skin and compress some of that orange so that the most red parts and the most green or yellow parts come together into a slightly warmer orangey thing. And that's regardless of how bright or dark your skin tone is, they'll always compress that orange so that it's a little more uniform and blemishes kind of disappear. And then in the greens, they will uh, kind of push those into a, into a more blue and a bit more saturated. And that's with like kind of any film stock. And there's different profiles within that, but those aspects are a lot of what make give like texture and, and life to photos. And we've walked away with that. It's when digital happened, we were like, no, 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 we're just gonna make it accurate, make make it real. Yeah. So when people look at the immediate results of what's coming straight out of their camera and say, like, this one is better because straight out of camera, it's got a bit more contrast, a little more saturation. I mean, to me, it's because we walked away from this sort of beautiful time of film. I've always wished I could build a camera that, like, just took film-looking digital photos. Yeah. yeah it's kind of a bad idea, but, you know. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Do you have anything more to say about this? I feel like I could go on about it for hours.
1: Yeah, same. No, pretty similar. I think the good thing about it is is, is that imaging will still continue to improve and cameras will still continue to get better. And it'll be for the kind of the benefit of of everyone. I'm glad I'm going to have kids in an era beyond today when cameras will be even better than they are now. And kind of on your point that you mentioned earlier, I was born in the early 90s. And so all of the photos of me as a child Mm. were all shot on film. And so all of these photos look fantastic. And, you know, they're they're quote-unquote resolution, even though that's not really an accurate term, mm-hmm. is excellent and superb. And I have large prints of me as a kid. And then when we moved to my sister, who is the youngest in the family, she was born in 2001. We had, we were kind of one of the first families I knew to have a digital camera. The, the, the downside, obviously, <laughs> is that we were shooting cameras at who knows what, probably 640 yeah, by one uh, 480 or something. Yeah, if that and um and so they look horrible even yeah. though she's 10 years younger than me all her baby photos look awful
0: yeah didn't realize it was going to be a curse
1: right and i think we're we're kind of nearing the point if we haven't already that for people who are not photographers the technology has gotten good enough that they can be decent photographers obviously you know composition and all that stuff is is People still suck at that. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're the worst. (laughs) Nothing can fix that. (laughs) Just because your camera
1: knows how to take photos doesn't mean you do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think on the whole, people are better at taking photos now than they ever have been and will only continue to improve, if only because of the technology.
0: So I think it's good. This episode is brought to you by Cronaby, makers of premium connected watches. If you're anything like me and you're generally up to date with the latest tech, then your watch probably should do more than just tell the time. So a watch can do things like control your music, trigger photos on your phone, send you notifications, drop geotag pins, control if this then that for a smart home, and the list goes on and on. But as tech moves on, which it always does, it moves quickly, often much more quickly than the style of watches. In fact, the simple design of watches, of beautiful watches, hasn't changed in about a century. With Cronaby, you know that the watch on your wrist is going to look as good in five years as it does today. And the tech is also updated off and they're constantly adding new features through firmware. So even though you're getting the latest and greatest, you're also getting something that's going to last for years to come. And speaking of lasting, the battery actually lasts two whole years, which seems kind of impossible. That's not with recharging it or anything. You just put a normal watch battery in there and it lasts for two years. If any of this sounds interesting to you, you should definitely go to Cronaby.com And check out their watches. They're incredibly beautiful, very well made. I'm wearing one right now. And I can tell you, it doesn't feel like a gadget. It feels like a piece of fine jewelry. So, Thanks again to Cronaby for sponsoring the episode. That's K-R-O-N-B-Y dot com. This is a good one for you. I'll talk a bit about how Apple did in 2018. And a little bit about what they might be doing in 2019. And where things are moving. How did you... If you were to kind of give yourself... Create a little report card what would you give apple good and, and bad points for in the last year oh boy i mean to set this up a bit again like not everyone in the world follows snazzy labs so your perspective is That's definitely it, it true. is pretty <laughs> <laughs> although they should i mean you're getting you're getting there but it, it, you have a pretty balanced perspective like you will absolutely call apple on any problems that you see you call it as you see it but it's your platform of choice, typically, uh, you dabble a lot in the Hackintosh world and build your own computers. So uh, you have a pretty well-rounded perspective of all this stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, just as kind of a background, I've been a Mac user my entire life. Uh, my dad used Apple computers um, ever since the mid-80s, and um, when he was a kind of a teenager, bought his first computer, and I was born in this in this era of the 90s where Apple was not... <laughs> The Apple that we know today. I don't want to get into the history, but things were not good. And uh, there was this time where even he was kind of teased by his his friends and and buddies and other people thinking, why would you waste money on an Apple computer? They're horrible. As a result, I grew up with Macs my entire life. We never had a Windows PC in my house. When I went to school to learn how to use computers and do computer tech, I was completely lost, even though I was relatively tech savvy or thought myself to be just because I had never used Windows at scale. And I had been um, I remember vividly, it's one of the first things I remember about computers was I remember playing the jump start games for Mac OS on the Mac OS 10 Kodiak beta, which was the first version of the first public beta of mac os 10 released in the very early i think it was 1999 um, if not early 2000 and i remember like the dock and thinking yeah you know this is awesome so i've been a mac user and a mac fan my entire life and it's it's really the only platform that i've ever known at scale and over the last few years i've you know i've built gaming pcs and i've kind of expanded and i i like to kind of boast about the fact that I'm, I'm probably the only person I know that uses both windows and Mac OS daily, as well as iOS and Android pretty frequently. Mm. And so I'm, I'm constantly looking at all of these platforms, but as you mentioned, I still have a preference towards Apple. I think part of it is because it's just, it's been the platform I've used my entire life. I am quicker. I am faster. I I know everything. I know Mac OS 10 inside and out. And Windows, I still suck <laughs> at using. And part of it, I think, is because Windows is just inherently less intuitive than macOS. I'm going to get hate comments for that. And then part of it is just because I, I don't know it as well.
0: There's a quote I really liked from CGP Grey at some point on Cortex, where he's talking about that it would be, and and I just can fully relate, so I'll just l- let his quote carry it, that um, it would be easier to adapt to moving to a foreign country than to completely change <laughs> platforms. Uh, like you would, you would more quickly find yourself at home and, and integrate yourself. And I totally believe that. I mean, Windows is fine if that's where you've always been. Like I spent some time in Windows land and it was working for me then. I have no interest in investing the time and moving somewhere else. And it doesn't mean that other things are bad. It's just like, it would, it would mess up my world Big time! Oh yeah! So no, and it's it's true. I lived in a foreign country and I learned a different language, and it was probably easier <laughs> than Windows. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I, I think that's. There's a lot of truth to that. And every time I publish a video about the Mac or about iOS or, or whatever, I ultimately will get comments from people saying, "Is Mac OS worth X dollar premium to you over a, a comparable PC?" And I always say yes. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no matter. I would pay thousands of dollars to use mac os over windows and i know that sounds snooty i know that sounds dumb but it's just the platform that i know how to use and that's not to say that if i had grown up using windows i would probably say the same
0: i probably would well i think something that youtube is not well equipped to talk about because it's a really complicated question is the the idea of is it worth it right which you know, is a good title for a video. is really fraught because people have a lot of different amounts of money sure. and, and different types of jobs. And their fields and are different, yeah. Totally. So there, anybody that if you if you write into your favorite YouTuber, if you add a com- leave a comment saying, "But is it worth it? Is it worth it to spend the extra money?" Just don't don't waste your time doing that because it's so personal. If you are just if you're just wealthy, if you just have disposable income that question is completely different. You know, you, you're you going to choose the thing that just feels right to you and, and works best for you. But if every dollar you spend on your gear and on your tech is a stretch and you're not sure if you can make it work, it's a totally different conversation. Absolutely. And you shouldn't be looking to somebody that might be getting a lot of this either for free or they're using it as their job and, and try to let them evaluate if it's a, an appropriate value f- for you it's it's just not how you should judge spending your money
1: i agree and so i think that that makes 2018 even more interesting because we we can talk about the specific products if you if you want to but i think the overarching criticism of apple this year is the perceived increase in price across every line oh
0: my god yes i haven't talked i haven't really talked about it anywhere yet but it is real. <laughs> I think it's very real.
1: It is. I mean it's yeah. it's undeniable. You look at the numbers and and, and this is one thing that, that people always conveniently forget. Um, Apple fans in particular. If we look at the Mac Mini, the Mac Mini, the incoming Mac Mini costs $799. That's the base model. Mm-hmm. And it's replacing the $499 Mac Mini. And a lot of people, me included, and a lot of tech YouTubers will say Apple You're charging way more for this machine than you ever have before. And a lot of Apple fans, and I think their intentions are good, but they're just a little misconstrued, is they say, oh, well, of course, a new computer is going to cost more than an old computer Mm. because it is brand new. And they they don't realize that Apple doesn't change their pricing structure over the year or life of the product. Um, What it costs on day one is the same uh, price it's going to cost when it gets discontinued now that's not a hard and fast fact anymore because they have dropped the price on stuff they dropped the price uh, on the macbook air from 1099 to 999 Um, but generally speaking the price that a new apple product costs is the same price it costs the day before it gets replaced mac pro and exactly (laughs) they did move the specs down the line so they don't sell the uh what is it the the quad core mac pro anymore they only sell the the six and
0: Right. Yeah. I I don't remember the exact change, but yeah, basically they keep selling an ancient computer for the same amount of money.
1: Right. And it's, I mean, it was released in 2013 and by all intents and purposes, that is a dismal value. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 2018 for, for new anyway. So I think the the major criticism is Apple is increasing the prices of products and they are even accessories like the, the smart keyboard for the new iPad pro is $220 versus $180. The Apple Pencils, $130 versus $100. You look at the iPhone XS, retain the same price as the iPhone X, but the iPhone XR, which is now the quote-unquote cheap phone, (laughs) is as much money as as the flagship phone two years ago. And so I think on one hand, Apple has to do it, right? Because the market has matured. I think everyone who wanted a smartphone or was going to buy a smartphone, and I don't want to say everyone, but most markets have, and that's not to say they all went out and bought an iPhone, but even third world countries, I lived in Bolivia for two years from 2012 to 2014. By that time, iPhone and, and smartphones were prolific in the United States. Everyone had a smartphone by 2014. But when I left uh, Bolivia in, in 2014, I lived there for two years and I talked to probably 10,000 people. I was on the streets every single day walking around. I saw maybe 20 smartphones the entire time I was there. And now in 2018, all of my friends that I met there and everyone who I got to know, they, every single person has a smartphone. None of them are iPhones, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but every single person has a smartphone, whether it be a, a cheap Chinese import phone, but they're all there the potential market has has decreased. And there was this boom, like the smartphone boom for 10 years of of people that were both replacing their old phones, um, enthusiasts like you and I, and then people who were buying smartphones for the first time. And I think the latter group has, for large part, disappeared, at least where Apple's bread and butter is, which is in first world and second world markets. And so I think as a result, given the fact that, there's not just a bunch of people buying phones now. And then I think the other part is that the phones have gotten so good and technology has gotten so excellent that year over year, the updates are are less significant now than they were from, for example, the iPhone – the first iPhone to the iPhone 3G. It was a massive bump. Apple used to get on stage and say, oh, this phone is – Two hundred percent faster than the one it's replacing, and it's a thousand percent faster than the first iPhone from four years ago. And now they don't really mention that, and if they do, it's it's pretty minor. And so I think phones have just gotten good, and so we're not buying them as frequently. And so, as a profit-maximizing entity, naturally they need to bring up prices mm-hmm. because people aren't buying phones as much. And Apple, I think it's a bit silly that. Even I'm guilty of it sometimes too, but the general public thinks they know the industry better than Apple. (laughs) Apple is the, like one of the largest corporations in the world and they have hundreds of people whose entire jobs it is to study markets, to identify the apex at which they can maximize profits, but also not decrease sales and all of this stuff. And people think, oh, well, Apple's just overpricing, and they don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think they they do, and that's not to say that corporations are infallible and that they don't make mistakes because they do all the time. Apple <laughs> has a very storied history of making continued dumb moves, not in the last decade, but it, but even even recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's not to say that they're clueless, but I think they're very well versed. They've studied the amount of people that will spend. I don't know. Pro- profit maximizing numbers. If I sell you a hot dog for $4 and 10 people are willing to buy it. And then if I say, okay, the hot dog's $5 now, and nine of those 10 people are still willing to buy it. Well, then you're going to charge $5 because mm-hmm. you're still going to make more money. But if I charge $6 and only four people are going to buy it, well, then I need to go back to $5. So it's this whole, like Apple, Apple knows this and they've done these these studies. Now, a lot of them are, are predictive. They don't really know until they actually do it. And it will be interesting when we see their quarterly earnings to see how the price changes this year have reflected in their actual sales numbers and revenue. We've known from the last couple quarters that actual unit sales are down, but the earnings per sale are up because obviously everything costs more money. So each device is going to bring in more revenue, but it's, it's interesting. What are your perceptions of the price increases.
0: Well, okay, if if the, li- if the listener right now doesn't listen to all the other tech podcasts we mentioned, this is an unoriginal idea. But I agree with what I've been hearing across the board, that the big problem would be if the bottom rises too far. So if it becomes too expensive to get into the Apple ecosystem, or, or not even just to enter it, like, to, to really live in it, if a lot of people start getting priced out of being an apple user in general that will become a much bigger problem and i am okay with the ceiling being raised kind of infinitely i'm totally fine with apple doing high-end luxury products i want them i want the next mac pro to be and a supercomputer. Like, I want it to be the best possible thing they can build. There's no reason to me that they shouldn't be building the best computers in the world in every category they possibly can. Like, give me a $10,000 iPhone. Um, I mean, give it to me because I'm not going to spend $10,000 on an iPhone. (laughs) Yeah. But, but I would love for them to be pushing that envelope and developing it. And like, that's how exciting, crazy new tech works. I mean, curved screens and AMOLED and things that like were really advanced tech a few years ago when they came out were crazy expensive. I can't think of a lot more examples. I don't know, 8K, 4K, even just before that. Like the the cutting edge is so expensive at first, but that's how you let it become mainstream. And I want Apple to play in that world. I want them to have some of that stuff that is the absolute best you can possibly buy or, or somewhat predicting the future a little bit. That's not, that's not typically Apple's thing, but like just build, build the absolute best machines you can, but don't price out young people. Don't price out people that want to love your brand and they want to, you know, have all of their machines designed in Cupertino, but they can only afford iPhone case and not the actual iPhone.
1: And I I think that's, I think you're dead on because, I mean, if you look at – so here's an example. It's an old example, but here's an example. Apple sold the Apple II clear up until, I think, 1993, which was a computer released in 1977. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that the Apple II didn't evolve over its lifetime. It did. It got faster. It got slimmer. It got quieter. But they they kept this kind of lower-end product in their lineup for years, for decades, so that they could have an entry-level offering. And when jobs returned and cut out all of that fluff, I think they changed the way they did business to where the new thing is going to cost the same price as the old thing and it's going to be way better. And that's one thing that I admired about the way that early Apple and really Apple until the last couple of years ago operated was that they tried to go down market as, as much as they could. And when they couldn't drop the price of you know, their bottom end product. They'd introduce a budget product. They'd introduce the iPod mini for people that couldn't afford the larger iPod. They'd introduce the iPod nano for people who couldn't afford the iPod video. And they would bring inherent benefits to those other devices. The iPod nano was way smaller than the iPod video. It used flash storage rather than a hard drive. And so they brought improvements and changes to these quote unquote cheaper budget options. They made them appealing, right? Which I think Apple and Maybe recent Apple has kind of failed to do, where a lot of their quote unquote budget or entry level products just aren't as attractive as they used to be, um, but then in the same breath, the, the the bottom end, as you as you mentioned, has increased, um, and and that's I mean it's it's a fact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the only the only device that Apple has in its current lineup that is cheaper than the version that it um, that, that preceded it. And the only device that I think is an inherently good value in Apple's lineup is the $329 iPad. Mm-hmm. That device, when it was released, was the cheapest iPad. It was specifically targeted at a new lower price. And I think for $329, it's a killer yeah. product. Uh, I would I would be willing to spend more for an iPad Pro, and I have. But for people that don't want to, it provides ninety percent of the same experience for thirty percent of the cost, and I think that is an incredible value. But I think that's one of the few remaining examples in Apple's lineup that really does
0: that. I, when I just bought my most recent MacBook Pro, because uh, you know I don't buy like review machines. When I'm buying something, it's because I need it, and dropping sure. a ton of money on it like it's it's important to me and it's expensive and um I really was I mean I knew what the price was ahead of time I follow this stuff but still laying down my money and seeing it go away oh, it's brutal. Uh, and then I went back yeah. and looked at my receipts from the last MacBook Pro I bought and I'm like I'm spending double almost double double well, yeah, what would you spend forty two hundred no, bucks over five? Oh, Canadian, right? Sorry, so. right. So, but yeah, <laughs> you know, getting getting close to five American. I know it's insane, and yeah, and it's and it's tough because like I also feel like so. Okay, well, I don't want to only talk about pricing of Apple. Like it is the it is one of the biggest stories of twenty eighteen. I don't want to completely let it take over <laughs> because the other yeah. thing is that like they're on a pretty good. Upswing. I feel like I like a lot of what they've been doing. I I think they really have been refocusing on the pro market. Yep. Take the price away. I like what they did with the Mac Mini, sort of making it a little bit more pro. I'd, you know, maybe all of the components aren't exactly what they could be, but I like what their their new placement of it. Um, I like. Hmm. I got a lot of comments on my MacBook Pro video actually saying like, "Are you mad that they replaced the graphics card, the GPU, with the Vega so shortly hmm. after?"
1: I bought one six months ago too. No, I mean,
0: and I (laughs) personally, I hate. Like, I hate it. Yeah, I want the best. It's it's frustrating. But it's what they should do. Yeah. Every time there's a new GPU, put it in. Put it in. Every single time. Every two months if you have to, you know, like. Yeah, because they, I mean, you
1: you look at the the 27-inch iMac, they're still running a seventh generation processor, even though ninth gen processors are on the market. I mean, that computer hasn't been updated in over two years,
0: which is nuts. That's the pro approach that we need to see, especially if they're going to move into this new world of uh, whatever the new MacBook, or sorry, Mac Pro is that they have promise that will be really for pros uh, and you know hopefully a bit more expandable whatever they're going to do that way that they're looking at things is great and that's exactly what i want to see and that's exciting and of course there's still some problems with it like the keyboards i am sure they are scrambling to figure (laughs) (laughs) out what i mean i'm sure i hope yeah just like i i can see how challenging it must have been to be like look we've got a five-year roadmap and then all of a sudden, uh, two years into it, you're like, wait, Crap. everybody is having the same problem, but like, <laughs> yeah. how do you turn the ship that quickly? Uh, and, and, I mean, what else And the phones are fantastic. I love this generation of phones. I also think the iPhone 10 was fantastic. Like they've been totally on a roll with, uh, heart, uh, iPad pros are amazing. Yeah. Crazy expensive product of 2018. If you ask yeah, me, Yeah. No. I love um, mine. So many really, really great things. But do you think
1: that people's perceptions of these products is decreased because of the increased prices? Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, the keyboards, for example, people are way less forgiving because they spend so much. Um, it, it makes it so yeah. much more – you become more picky, and as you should, right? I mean, you, you expect more to the product, and so every failure is a bigger thorn in your paw. you know? it drives you a little more crazy because yeah. you keep remembering how much you – spent to have apple to have the best to have it just works well
1: and it'll be interesting i've i've heard that a lot of the strategy behind this price increasing is because of expected tariffs from the trump administration and all this other stuff but i think the the end consumer's perception is apple's charging me more for the same and or maybe in some cases even less and i think that's a real shame because i think that's the first time in more than a decade where even to Apple's own fans, the value proposition of their new products is not enough to warrant the price increase. And that's that's too bad because I agree. I think the products released this year on the whole are excellent. I have some qualms with a few of them, but the majority of them are <laughs> really well, good.
0: And the thing is, if they want to move into that higher end range and become – like a true luxury product and a true professional product, then a lot of these complaints have to go away. Yeah. You know, like the things that... No, you can't have a bad keyboard on a $5,000 yeah, exactly. Computer. So, yeah, if you want to have the most expensive computer on the market, just l- let it be, make, make sure it's flawless, right?
1: And then I still think that they need to find a way to bring a lot of these cheaper offerings, uh, well, cheaper variants of their flagship products more right. down market. Because what... What they're doing now is they're just bringing last year or from two years ago. They're just pushing everything down the line. So what used to be the flagship two years ago, you can now get for $400. But that's not appealing because it's not a new product. And you can find that stuff on the used market. And so why not do what old Apple would do and introduce a new product
0: specifically targeted at the lower end like the iPad that sold Mm -hmm. so well? It's tough because is there – do I have good reason to – not just recommend people buy the older one. No. And I've been doing it. Yeah. That's what Apple's going to say is like, look, we have the widest spectrum we ever have of iPhone prices. You know, there's, there's so many yeah. iPhones to choose from, but is it that bad? I don't know. I mean, am am I just forgetting about the fact that you can still buy, you can still buy an iPhone 7, right? I'm not imagining that. The, the irony
1: though is, is that I don't tell people to go buy a new iPhone 7. I say, go on Craigslist and find one for 150 bucks. Right. <laughs> go buy a used one or go buy a refurbished one on eBay for a quarter of the price of what Apple charges. Yeah. So I think Apple's losing a lot of potential sales to the used market and to, to competition that just provides a better value. Yeah. And Apple's never been one to target the low end. They're not going to start now. They're not going to start making an iPhone for $199 that you can get with ads on it from Amazon Prime. Like It's never going <laughs> to <Please> happen. <now>. <laughs> <laughs> They're never going to do that. I think they have to at least attract people who are interested in that lower end segment to spend a little bit more to get an apple product because right now they're not even in the conversation mm-hmm. it's not even it's not even a consideration because the only option is to buy a two-year-old phone versus a phone that's still cheaper and is as good as well <laughs> i don't want to say as good as but the pokephone which is as close to as good as the pixel 3 in terms of mm-hmm. specs um, and so, yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting few years. And I think part of it is because this is the last thing I'll say about it. I think Apple as a company has matured and they haven't had a black swan. So you look at the iPod, the iPod changed everything. I mean, the fact that we were using, there were, and that's the thing that, that, you know, A lot of Apple critics will say, well, Apple wasn't the first to have an MP3 player on the market. And you're right. They weren't. (laughs) But they were the first one to provide a good software client. iTunes, even though right now and for the last five years, it's been a trash fire. For a lot of years, it was an incredible piece of software. And it was free. And it was platform agnostic. And you could get it on Mac OS and Windows. And the iPod was a game changer. It was the best device. And nothing else even came close. And you look at the iPhone. And no, the iPhone was not the first smartphone on the market. There were Palms and Blackberries and all these other phones that had been there for years. And some of them had touchscreens and some of them. And if you look at the first iPhone, there was no MMS. It couldn't record video. It was edge only when 3G was already pretty ubiquitous. And so there were a lot of things that were inherently quote unquote downgrades or worse than what you could get from comparable devices on the market when iPhone was introduced. But iPhone was iPhone. I mean, it was polished and it just worked. And the fluidity of the operating system and, and the way that the gestures worked and a single home button and a software keyboard, I mean, these were game changers. And even look at the iPad. And to an extent – maybe even the apple watch apple apples never really talked about how big of a deal apple watch is they've never specified exact unit sales i mean it's always been clumped into kind of their uh, wearables and other category when they do their quarterly earnings but you see apple watches on like 90% of people's wrists here in the us and and in canada yeah. and i know that's not the same in other parts of the world but it it was huge and it's now been several years since apple had a product that came out of left field That left all their competitors scratching their heads for a few years on how they were going to catch up. One more thing. Yeah. And maybe Apple doesn't have any of those left. And so that's why they're just trying to hang on and and keep making good products and do the best they can and, and not stand out from the crowd. Or maybe this is a couple of slump years where we don't hear much from them and the new upgrades are nice, but not amazing. And the price increases are rough until there's this new thing that blows everyone's mind i hope so
0: but i don't know i'm not convinced as much as i used to be anymore this episode is brought to you in part by the camera store my favorite camera store the camera store how did they get that name i I honestly have no idea but if you're on youtube search for them and you're going to find the camera store tv which creates fantastic content that you've probably already watched they have incredibly useful reviews of most new cameras that come out and they've been a trusted resource for me for years Or better yet, if you live in Canada, you can order from them online with free shipping for orders over $100. They always have the best prices, so I don't feel like I need to shop around. I know that I'm getting a good deal there. But again, if you're outside of Canada, no problem. Just check them out on YouTube. They're great people. Thanks again to the Camera Store for supporting the show. Let's look ahead a little bit. Uh, Something I haven't talked about. Another thing I haven't talked about on the show is the moving of uh, processors from Intel to ARM. And this is something that is building enough momentum that it seems like it seems like either it is happening or, uh, app, or Apple hasn't committed to it yet, but know that it's a likely option. It's happening, man. Yeah, you follow this stuff closer <laughs> than I do. So, I mean, for me, computers are mostly a thing I use to create stuff. And so what I care about is how they affect that creation, how they work as a tool. You crack them open a lot more and, and know what's going on. Give me some insight into this. Like what? To you, does moving to ARM mean, and is it good or bad? Um, So I've been a crazy nut job
1: that has been saying for probably five years now that Apple is moving to ARM. And when I first started, people were like, no, that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. You don't know what you're talking about. And now it's like, "Mm, it might be happening. (laughs) And I think it is. I think one of the driving forces moving away from Intel, and Apple has done this before. Um, I mean, in the early 2000s, they had power PC processors that were co-developed with IBM. And when they first came out, they were incredible. And Apple would get up on stage. And and, uh, it's something that people don't realize now, but it was the truth. In the late 90s and early 2000s, Apple would release a new computer and Apple would release a new laptop. And it would be the fastest laptop on the market. And nothing could even get close to it. And now thinking of that, it seems silly because Apple, you know, they're typically more expensive and less power. And you get more polish, but it's, you can get faster, better computers for less money. In the early 2000s, you couldn't. And Apple was top of its game. But PowerPC, the architecture kind of couldn't develop. And Intel was picking up steam. And they had a lot of help from kind of PC OEMs. And there were inherent issues to, to Power PC. One of them was power consumption and cooling was a big problem. Um, so they eventually switched, I believe, in 2005 to Intel. And if you ever want to enjoy (laughs) a very awkward moment in an Apple keynote, go and watch the 2005 presentation where they unveil the first Intel iMac. And there are audible boos (laughs) from the crowd of people saying, no, it was like one of the weirdest kind of most jarring instances for a lot of people because it was the moment that Apple kind of quote unquote gave in and became the same as every other computer on the market. And since then, their computers have been the same. They're using the same chips. Nothing has been inherently better other than macOS, which is a big difference, by the way. But other than the operating system, there hasn't been a huge performance advantage to going with a Mac. And I think Apple longs for those days, and they also are sick of Intel. Intel has basically a monopoly on the market. Now, AMD is catching up, but They're still no, especially in, in the desktop, or excuse me, in the laptop lineup. And so Apple wants to get away from them. And Apple has always, as any company should, tried to vertically integrate. So they try and they buy companies that they work with uh, most famously, or they'll just sabotage and build their own thing. <laughs> so when Apple started building their own chips in the iPhone, they still used a GPU from a separate company. And Apple was developing their own GPU behind the scenes. In one year, I don't know, they didn't renew their contract or whatever. They just said, okay, we're making our own GPU. And the company that had been supplying iPhone or Apple with GPUs for iPhones, and they had, Apple had become their biggest client and they were a publicly traded company, suddenly ended up with their largest customer, which accounted for 50% of their revenue, just gone. Mm -hmm. And um, so Apple loves doing that. And they should, because they make way more money and they can advance stuff at their own pace. And I think- there are instances in which Apple has wanted to upgrade certain parts of their machines, but haven't been able to because of Intel's update cycle and because of the very minor increases in performance that Intel's chips bring year over year. Now, usually it's only about 5 to 10 percent, and oftentimes there's a lot of trade offs like higher heat output. Famously, Intel's been stuck on the same process for like three years now.
0: Now there's even word that they're looking to move away from the Intel modems that they're using. Is that, is that am I yeah. getting that right? So they, yeah. you know, and was Qualcomm before, now they're going to start developing their own. I mean, at some point, it's going to be, you know, Apple from the ground up.
1: And I think that's what Apple wants to do. They can make it cheaper, they can make it better. It just makes sense. And they don't rely on other companies to innovate at the pace that, you know, Apple just does it at their own speed. And so I think, there's a lot of advantages, and, and one of the benefits to being the largest company in the world <laughs> is that they Apple has the ability to afford a lot of this stuff that smaller phone manufacturers can't do or won't do. Um, and then the other benefit that Apple has is Apple is the iPhone, I mean, basically, um, whereas Huawei is, is mostly a networking company and LG does all sorts of crap, and so – and Samsung – Apple is Apple and they make a very narrow subset of devices. And I think that's an advantage to them because they can spend a lot of money on something that maybe wouldn't make financial sense for these other companies.
0: Speaking of luxury, this actually reminds me a lot of a kind of in-depth article I read about Rolex at one point. And Rolex's manufacturing is the most vertical and in-house of any watch company by a huge margin. Like typically even luxury watches are sourcing – a lot of their different parts from Air other companies. And yeah. all sorts they're not they're only yep. they're designing the like the casing and, and selecting parts more or less. Like most cell phones are. Yep. Uh Rolex is all in-house, including smelting their own gold. Like they do yep. absolutely every single detail of the watch from beginning to end. And I mean so the before that I had this perception of like, you know, they're a luxury watch because of the name like their name is the value. But the more I looked into what their manufacturing process is like, they're reinvesting that money in very serious ways to differentiate themselves in every other way. And that's that's a little bit of what we're talking about here. Like at some point, Apple will be, it'll be like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It'll be like the lockdown Willy Wonka land where everything happens behind those gates and and nobody's doing building it externally.
1: And an interesting kind of side uh, argument to that whole Rolex thing is that Rolex is actually a, um, a trust. It's a, the, the company's in a trust. So it's basically a nonprofit company. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's basically a nonprofit that's sanctioned by Switzerland. And so, um, they have to either give all the money they generate in revenue to their employees, um, or reinvest it into the company. And so they can afford to do all these crazy things that no one else can afford to do. And I think that's similar to Apple, and then Apple is liable to shareholders and they have to continue making money. But they can justify doing a lot of these things because they just have bajillions of dollars mm-hmm. sitting around that they because right now they're just doing stock buybacks and the, the stuff Apple's doing is relatively boring because there's not much they can do with it. But they can justify in certain ways um, expensing items or vertically integrating things that. other companies might not make financial sense, but Apple has the autonomy to do because it will give them more freedom and control over their own products. And they can afford to lose
0: money if it means providing a better product in the end. Let's also, let's, before we get to the end here, I want to make sure we say like, what would be so amazing about arm on Mac? Sure. I mean, maybe everybody listening already knows, but if you, if you pick up an iPad pro, you, you can see it right there. Um, yeah. Some of the it, basically, if you just check out some of the Geekbench geek scores or different, just all sorts of different benchmarks, the iPad Pro is starting to compete with the oh, laptops. Yeah. And in some very specific areas, I didn't, I don't remember exactly how this panned out, but that it was even beating the iMac Pro at like really specific JavaScript optimized tasks. Uh, I don't know the details of that, but yeah. And it's it's it's
1: really hard to compare the two platforms because their architectures are so different. Um, but I think it does highlight in a way the fact that Apple's silicon manufacturing has gotten really good. And I mean, if you look at like the, the flagship, uh, I mean, you look at the, the the A12 Bionic, the chip from this year versus the Snapdragon 845, it's a joke how much better Apple's chips are every single year. <laughs> they're, like, they're almost double the performance and no one else can even come close. And so in the ARM world, kind of Apple is king. And I think that that will be a big benefit uh, to them as they kind of transition the Mac, because again, for one part, they're no longer dependent on Intel to innovate. They can make their own silicon that is specifically tailored to work well in the areas that Apple cares about. Um, And then they'll have full control over the, the processes. So with their own software and with their own OS, they could make Final Cut Pro. I bet Final Cut Pro on the iPad Pro, if it such a thing existed, could scream. Yeah. I bet it could do better than most of Apple's desktop lineup.
0: It reminds me of something I only tweeted about and I never – this is my episode to get everything out that I tweeted about and never talked about. <laughs> the biggest sign to me that this is, this is happening now was that recent change to – all of mac os actually not just final cut but that they're deprecating support for devian HD and devian xhr and cineform so if you don't know those are yeah. all of the the kind of the standard windows video formats like um right. in projects that i've had in the past uh for for stocks for stock video company as well um we would be moving files back and forth and things that windows couldn't encode ProRes. So if you're doing anything where the machines need to talk to each other, you'd need to choose some other format for the Windows machines to be outputting. And so typically that would be one of those two or three formats I just mentioned. Uh, And DVNX, HD, and HR are the same, just one's 4K, one's 1080. Um, But yeah, so macOS is just going to be dropping support of that. They've just announced it will be deprecated in the future. And... To me, that is just like, that is why. I cannot think of any other reason that they're like, look, ProRes will be fully hardware optimized. Like it's going to, it will be our full advantage. And if we try to keep these legacy formats around, it's just going to slow us down.
1: I think so too. And and funnily enough, premier just supported yeah. <laughs> or announced native native ProRes support in windows I'm sure that was a conversation with apple yeah yeah i think they need to get on apple's bandwagon because of how apple really has a, a large hand in control over the creative mm-hmm. market but um yeah so I, I think from a control aspect it's going to be it's going to be big and then the other reason is that the mac has decreased in popularity well I don't want to say it's decreased because it it still does well, but it is a footnote on Apple's revenues compared to iOS devices. Um, iPhone and iPad are Apple's bread and butter, and the Mac is kind of just like, oh, yeah, also we make computers. And I think one big advantage of shifting over to ARM is that suddenly uh, the Mac and the iOS and iOS can share much of the same code base. And if you look at something kind of a la Windows 10 where – Microsoft really tried hard and they, you know, they kind of Microsoft it, they kind of failed, but they tried to basically have Windows 10 exist amongst mobile and tablet and Xbox and PCs to to share the majority of the code base. And I think Apple could do a really excellent job with a kind of apple os unified operating system it wouldn't be the same on every platform it's not like your mac is suddenly going to turn into a big ipad they're still going to offer different experiences and the applications will look different on the devices that you choose to use them on and maybe even the input methods will be different although i don't think so i do can talk about <laughs> that in a minute if you want it's tough one but uh i, th- I think a, a big indicator that this is happening is that um, apple announced that they are bringing a new app format to mac os it's basically a tool that will allow developers to easily port ios apps to the mac and i think this is the first fruit of many years of work on apple's part to kind of bring arm into the mac os sphere where if i develop a mac app and or i develop an ios app and I'm not going to go out and make a Mac app because I basically have to write entirely different code. And there's not that many people that use the Mac. Why would I do that? But if I have an app that's very successful on the iPhone and on the iPad, and in a couple of days, I can make it compatible with the Mac, that's suddenly a lot more enticing for developers to make good apps and modern apps for the Mac. And if they do, and there's more apps that are available on more platforms from Apple, consumers are more inclined to buy <laughs> new and more devices from Apple that are streamlined across all three devices, iPhone, iPad, and, and Mac OS, into this unified kind of lineup. And I think it'll be interesting. Really, the next year is is when we're going to see stuff. And, and macOS Mojave already has evidence of this. If you open up the stock apps, or the stocks app, or um, the what's called Apple Home app, or the news app, those are all iPad apps. That were converted to macOS using this new tool that Apple's going to be offering to developers, and I think it's good and bad.
0: I mean, I've, I've heard <laughs> all those apps are terrible. Can I be honest? I didn't up I didn't upgrade to Mojave. Well, it's probably a good move. Yeah, just safety. You know, I, yeah. I heard a few people having issues, and I just I can't afford the downtime. So,
1: yep, I did, and I have and even though i told people don't upgrade mm-hmm. i did and it was a bad idea <laughs> and i regretted it now it's fine but there was a couple of weeks where the stuff was a it's night. so
0: weird that this is my life now that i skip upgrades that i wait a I year know. i like who am i yeah. that i'm not downloading on day 1 because that was that's the old me but i uh
1: well i'm glad you're disciplined cuz i tell people don't do this yeah, it's going to yeah, be yeah. bad but then i do it anyway
0: <laughs> the things i don't need to talk about it that much like I, Updates of, of Mac OS is a bit too specific for what I usually talk about. So it's not it's not, it's not mission critical. And uh, what is mission critical is working, you know, getting, getting everything done. Yeah. And uh, I only have so many computers to do things on.
1: Really quickly, you mentioned how you've heard that a lot of these new applications provide a less than ideal experience. Mm-hmm. And I would agree. I think if you open the Stocks app and if you open the voice recording app, you're like, what the heck? Because it doesn't feel like an iOS app or like a Mac. app. The problem with that is this is coming from Apple. Yeah. This isn't third party stuff. Right. Well, there's no pull down menus and the buttons are strangely far yeah. apart because they're designed for fingers, which are fatter than a mouse cursor. And so it feels kind of odd. And I think that it's because Apple's not intending for us to eventually use those apps in this way. Um, it's more of a tech demo for like, see, look how your apps can work on a Mac. But Apple has long said, and I've always been critical of this, and, and they still say it. I mean, uh, Phil Schiller said it on John Gruber's The Talk Show uh, last year, or was it Craig Federiki? I don't know. One of them, an Apple executive, said last year, uh, oh, well, you know, we're, we're still not looking into a touchscreen Mac or a MacBook because no one wants to lift their arm up in the air <laughs> yeah. and reach out and touch a screen. Hello, what's the iPad Pro? Yeah, They market the iPad Pro as a computer. It's not marketed as a fun little tablet you can watch Netflix on. They are showing in the ad people lifting up their arm to touch the and screen. More and
0: more people are doing it. Yeah. And, well, although I will say that I that is something that holds me back from wanting to – get full-time on an iPad. I mean, there's a lot of things that could hold me back, but I do, especially typing. Okay, that's the best example. Okay, now all of a sudden I just switch gears, to talk about iPad. But <laughs> when I'm typing and I don't have a trackpad to move my text selector and I need to lift my hand to do that, like wh- why would I do that? Yep. Um, oh, yeah. So there are instances that it's really frustrating to
1: have to do that. You're now on a Mac and you're using these apps that you just want to touch the buttons because they're designed to be touched. And you have to drag your mouse cursor and do these weird little things. I mean, e- even one – this is just an example. Do you use messages on, on macOS? Sure do. Yeah. So if you – you know the little tap back function where you can react like send a plus or a haha or an exclamation point or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So on the iPhone, you hold the message or you force touch. That's not a gesture on Mac OS. Well, actually, it is on the, the force touch trackpads on the MacBook, but it doesn't that's another weird disconnect. It doesn't work like that on the on the trackpads on the Mac. But um you can either right click and then press tap back, which is kind of the Mac way to do it, right? You're like, okay, I need to access a submenu, probably right click, and then I can do that. or you can hold down on the message. So one of the functions is holding down with your mouse until that menu pops up. Uh-huh. Can you think of any other instance on your computer ever that in order to select or to do an action, you have to hold down a button? Press and hold. It's so weird. You don't do that on a Mac. You don't do that on a computer. So there's weird stuff like that where we're now getting into this kind of awkward hodgepodge stage of it not really being ideal on an iPad because you don't have a mouse but then it also not really being ideal on a Mac
0: because you can't touch stuff that you want to touch. This is going to be a lot bigger than the Intel rewrite. Oh, yeah. No,
1: it's a huge – I mean, it's not just a the underlying code base and not really that perceptible to people. This is a whole dynamic shift of how these platforms are and how they function and when you use what and for whom. Um, but I think we're going to see eventually – and people still think I'm nuts, but this is just my theory <laughs> – that we're going to see – a new device that is not really a laptop and not really a tablet but something that serves the I don't I don't know it just seems weird to have a Mac that doesn't have a touchscreen that's running touchscreen apps and have an iPad that doesn't have a trackpad that is trying to be a laptop and so I think there's going to be a new app or a new operating system or a new device or something that kind of unifies this weird conglomeration of things that don't really mesh that well together. Otherwise, it's going to be kind of a bad experience on both platforms.
0: I well, think. on an infinite timescale. Yeah, eventually. In
1: Cupertino time. <laughs> Maybe it'll take uh, 15 years. Who knows? But I think it's coming sooner rather than later. I do think we'll see ARM Max within the next couple of years. Uh, people say the next year. I don't think so. I think at least two or three. Yeah, This,
0: is, this uh, is a huge, huge project.
1: Yeah, not to mention that they're going to need to be able to run legacy apps so apps that are currently x86 apps on the Mac. And, like, and run them just as well. Right. Or or close to as well. And um, that's, from what I've heard, not easy. Uh, Windows has tried to do that with Windows 10 ARM. And there's a little runtime kind of uh, emulator of sorts that apparently is just not very good. And so I think it's still a few years out. But I do think that eventually we're going to get to this point where Apple kind of maybe surprises us. With the device or an operating system or some weird hybrid of sorts that we don't expect, even though today they're still up on stage saying, no, we're not implementing iOS into the Mac.
0: (laughs) Well, and then we can finally get back on our exponential speed increases year over year that we were used to in the 90s. We can only hope. I mean, we're seeing it on iPads, So, Yeah. yeah. Gwen, you're awesome. Thanks for coming on, man. Where can people find you? Where are all the places that people should ingest your content
1: oh boy i'm everywhere the most uh, notable is is youtube.com snazzy and then you can find me on social media by at snazzyq